0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves." And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I had a neighbor some years ago who had on her fridge one of those Christian bookstore cards, the kind with the picture of really gentle, nice Jesus, surrounded by light and clouds. And it said on the front next to the picture, Jesus is coming. And then on the inside of the card, it said, everybody look busy. That card has always made me laugh, but in a sort of release valve way, you know? I think it's getting at what I still feel internally when I hear things like our gospel lesson or our Old Testament lesson this evening. Are we really supposed to be looking over our shoulder, wondering if we've done enough our whole life? Is the idea really, Jesus is coming, everybody look busy? The way that weddings worked in Jesus' day was quite different from our own. The bridegroom would work out the, with the bride and her parents the dowry price, at which point the young couple would be betrothed to one another. They would be promised to marry one another at a commitment level that doesn't quite match engagement for our culture. It was a much heavier promise. And from that moment on, from that moment of betrothal on, the bride, often along with her mother, would spend her time preparing for marriage, getting ready to have a home of her own. And she was spend this time waiting, not really knowing when the bridegroom was going to appear to take her as his wife to the wedding feast. And so the bride and her bridesmaids would have to stand ready for his return. And if this return were to happen at night, the bridesmaids would light the way for the bridegroom to come and meet his bride, which would, of course, require that the bridesmaids be prepared with lamps and oil to light the way. The meaning of Jesus' parable here is fairly straightforward. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is being compared to a wedding feast. Once again, we see that the invite goes out with profligate generosity. Everyone in this story has been invited to the feast. In this case, those that have received the wedding invitation are shown in the characters of the ten bridesmaids, and it seems that all ten have responded positively to the gospel message, at least initially. That's what's meant by them being there ready with their lamps. This idea of responding initially to the gospel with potential for maybe not following through is a theme that echoes throughout Matthew's gospel account. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of Jesus' manifesto that we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had these chilling words for his hearers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he goes on to say, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Again, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the four soils, And again, its impact is a bit disconcerting. When he goes to explain the parable to his disciples, he says this, "'Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself.'" Matthew goes out of his way in his presentation of Jesus' life and Jesus' message of the good news to make it clear that to truly hear Christ's call in the gospel is to, as Matthew says in the mouth of John the Baptist at the very beginning of his gospel account, it's to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what it means to really hear the gospel. In the parable before us, the sleep of the bridesmaids refers to the sleep of death. As St. Paul makes clear in our New Testament lesson, when the bridegroom returns, those who have fallen asleep in death will be awakened and join him in the wedding feast. And the crisis of this parable hinges on the oil, which is a crisis that faces each of us. The choice between thoughtful preparation and careless unpreparedness. Given the parallels between this parable in Matthew 25 and Jesus' words in Matthew 7, it would seem that the oil represents doing the will of the Father. You see that the the five foolish bridesmaids say to him the exact words that he says in Matthew 7. Those he's never known will say to him, Lord, Lord. So the oil is doing the will of the Father, which would include at the very least repenting and believing in Christ, the one whom the Father has sent. But as we just heard in Christ's own words in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7, believing in him entails putting his words into practice. To truly hear the gospel means to actually start doing the will of the Father. And this is where I want to be very careful. I think there are kind of two main meta-narratives when it comes to Christianity in our culture. One is that God is angry and just exists in his anger unless you do the exact dance moves that he yells at you to make. The other is that God is this forgetful old man who just needs you to sign whatever contract that he's not really going to enforce. Or even worse, God is this intellectual idea, and as long as you give mental assent to whatever the idea is, then you're in, and everything's cool. In the first lie, everything is about you doing things right. And I think if you subscribe to that lie, it often results in us becoming like the angry older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, right? We believe for so long that our father is angry unless we get it perfectly right. And we've worked so hard at getting it perfectly right that we end up getting angry at any signs of grace toward anybody else. In the second lie, we tell ourselves that God really couldn't be bothered by how we use our body or our money. We're our time, and so we just sort of drift into doing whatever we want. I think this is often uh, associated with the idea that our choices don't really have meaning, that we're somehow closed in in this deterministic box. And In this case, I think we have become so assumptive that we don't recognize grace any longer as grace. We just assume God loves us because we're super cool. In both lives, God is not really a person. God is not really an object of our love. That's what they share in common. We're still at the center, either because we're so obsessed with doing everything right or because we've become so self-centered, we we can't be bothered to assume that God may have ideas for our life. This is where I I do want to be careful because some of you have been drinking for years at the bitter well of fundamentalism as have I and I want to steer us away from the myth of the angry God who locks us in a codependent relationship because that is a lie from the pit of hell but it is a persistent and tenacious lie and the worst part of it is that it tries to appropriate repentance as just another act of groveling before an angry father so for those of us in this first camp, repentance must enter in at a deeper level. We have to actually repent, like truly turn away from our habits of turning God into a monster. We have to hear with fresh ears his invitation to a life of love and joy, not a narrowly missed punishment. But some of you, quite frankly, have fallen off the horse in the opposite direction, You've turned Christianity into another chapter in your self actualization project, and grace ceased to be amazing a long time ago and is now just a matter of course. At one point, perhaps you responded to the call of the gospel with enthusiasm, but now you're in the weeds and perhaps you don't even know it. And to you, I would say, hear the word of God. For of this you can be sure no sexually immoral impure or greedy person such a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of christ and of god let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things god's wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore do not be partners with them for you were once darkness but now you are a light in the lord live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper rise from the dead and christ will shine upon you be very careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the lord's will is do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the spirit speaking to one another with psalms hymns and songs from the spirit Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Father Colin Dunlop was an Anglican bishop in the 20th century, and he once wrote, Heaven could only be heaven to those who begin here to hunger for heavenly things. Heaven could only be heaven to those who here begin to hunger for heavenly things. What are you hungry for? What have you been training yourself to be hungry for? It's either God or it's something else. As I've been wrestling through this text this week, I kept getting this image of a treadmill. And I've been so afraid of inadvertently suggesting that in order to be the wise and prudent bridesmaids who brought the oil of obedience with them, that we somehow have to stay on this treadmill with the speed ever increasing and ourselves increasingly exhausted. And this is the exact place where I have had to come to repentance this week because there's still some part of me that latches onto the lie that living my life in God is somehow like being chained to a treadmill. I don't know what your politics are, OK? But here's the thing I've noticed about Donald Trump. The thing that he yells the loudest about other people doing is usually the thing that he's been doing, right? Satan like all liars, is not creative. Being chained to the treadmill is what we're doing when we're not living our life in God. The thing that Satan is yelling at you the loudest about is not the thing that God is doing to you. It's the thing that Satan himself wants to do to you. To live with God is not to be chained to a treadmill. It's to be led beside still waters. It's to be brought to a place of rest in wide open green pastures and it's to be restored in your innermost self. That quote from Father Dunlop, heaven could only be heaven to those who begin here to hunger for heavenly things. It goes on to say, public worship is a deliberate corporate act of desire for God and what God offers. What we're doing right here is a public act We are training ourselves to have desire for God and what God offers. And what God offers is life to the full. If only we would believe him. Some of you may be feeling right now that there are things in your life that you may have to put down, you may have to walk away from, and that may feel really painful. I promise you, Jesus is not calling you away from those things because he's mean. He is not calling on you to lay down those things because he wants to be withholding somehow. He is offering you true life. Robert Capon says most things better than I could ever say them. So I'll end with him. He says, when all is said and done, when we have scared ourselves silly with the now or never urgency of faith and the once and always finality of judgment, we need to take a deep breath and let it out with a laugh because what we are watching for in the return of Christ, what we are watching for is a party. And that party is not just down the street, making up its mind when to come to us. It is already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes, and laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It's all part of the divine lark of grace— God is not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her wedding present china has been chipped. He is a funny old uncle with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. We do indeed need to watch for him, but only because it would be such a pity to miss all the fun. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.